hear it up here on stage, but we hear it down there. Get him to ring the bell. <coughs> Do we have to remember to shut this off each time then? Guys like me, perfect.
We were tussling and Good morning. Folks can hear us okay? We got new mics. Okay. All righty. Let's go over a couple of announcements. Uh, we all know the, the first four. Uh, number five, uh, we're going to be making an announcement about our evening service uh, for the near future in light of some of the... Uh, medical procedures uh, Jared has to go through, perhaps Mercy and, and others. Uh, but we'll discuss that at uh, tonight's Sunday School. So we are having Sunday School tonight, and uh, it will be determined as how we go forward with that this evening. So if you can, please try and make it. It is important. Uh, Ken, you have an update for us on your procedure that you had? I heard it was... Uh, Pretty interesting. Where was where was the blood going inside the body or
It has all kinds of bad connotations in my mind, so. Well, now, the question for Della, has she been able to procure a portable oxygen tank yet? Or, or, or you probably have to get on to somebody to do that because, we, we, you know, you need to tell her we really miss her here, you know. Well, we'll keep that into prayer. We'll keep that in prayer. Jerry, how's everything on your end? And yourself? Are you guys still out gardening? Boy, you got more than, than I got on the ball, I'll tell you. It's just unbelievable. You're feeling well? You're feeling well? Excellent. Sheila, where's George? <laughs> okay. All right. I'll well, keep him in prayer. Does anybody else have any uh, prayer requests or concerns? Spoken, unspoken, anything? Okay, with that in mind, uh, our scripture for meditation this morning is taken from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, verses 17 through 26. You'll find that on page 1036 in your pew Bible.
Would you stand with us as we begin our service with opening prayer? Dan, may I prevail upon you to lead us in prayer this morning? You take your red hymnal this morning and turn to 558, 558 in the Red Trinity. service and asked for the battle hymn of the republic it was mr lewis um mr lewis did you have a reason for this one and i'm looking up the number five six nine in the five six nine in the brown 
Just your favorite one today? Six nine. Sorry, Brown. That is several R. You may stand if you wish. You may stay seated if you wish. Five six nine. <laughs> Once again, I would ask you to stand with us for our scripture reading this morning, taken from the book of Luke, chapter 12, verses 13 through 34, and that'll be page 1617 in your pew Bible.
Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 34. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool! This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about what your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than the birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Father in heaven, we pray that you would add this to our hearts for consideration and thought, that your glory would be manifest in this parable, that we look to you in things instead of our own easy, quick rewards, and that your blessings would be upon us from this forward. In the name of Christ we ask, amen. Will you take your brown hymnals and turn to number 486, 486 in the brown. Four eight six in the brown. Okay. <laughs> it was really pretty though.
the bad sore on my hand is due to the fact that me and my cat were having a tussle. And he decided he didn't want to do that anymore. So he bit me. And that's why I'm not wearing a coat or a long sleeve shirt. So every time I put that on there, it rips the scab off, starts bleeding profusely. No, I didn't kill the cat, but he's my buddy. And um, we just tolerate each other. <laughs> All right, our text is Luke uh, chapter 12. In our last study, we looked at the return of God's glory, talking about uh, some time ago that God wrote Ichabod over Israel. The glory of God has departed. And we saw that it was a result of the sin in their life, and they were worshiping idols, and God said, I'm not going to tolerate that. I'll just take my glory all away from you, and he did. But then when they repented, God... Uh, gave them victory over the Philistines, and he returned his blessing on Israel. This series has to deal with a living faith, so that's what we're really talking about. And today I want to talk about substitutes that people use for faith in God. Substitutes. It's not really faith in God, but they use them anyway. So as we come, let's ask the Lord's blessing. Father, we thank you for your word. It's the sword of the Spirit. It's what really convicts us, not my words. It's the word of God. It is a two-edged sword, you say. So that means it cuts in either direction in which it's swung. And it will do its work by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're for that. We want that. An unbeliever wouldn't want it, but we want it because we know that the Word of God is what purifies our hearts, keeps us thinking straight. Mostly it keeps us thinking God's thoughts after Him because the Word of God is His thoughts. And so we have that great joy and comfort in knowing these things. The world could know what you're up to if, in fact, they were students of your Word, but most American families, even if they have a Bible, they never open it. We come on the Lord's Day to study the Word of God and to see what you have to say to us. We ask that your Holy Spirit will apply it to our lives and bring conviction to our hearts where we are failing and joy to our hearts where we are obeying. And we'll praise you for what you're going to do in Christ's name. Amen. We are looking today at the subject of substitutes. Substitutes for faith in God. There aren't any, but we use them. And we think that we're okay because of that. The text before us is Luke chapter 12. 
<clears throat> and we read verse 34 and following. I'm having trouble with my vision here this morning. Hang on. <clears throat> well, that's our text, chapter 12 of Luke, verses 13 and following. The parable of the rich man. And it talks about a person that is relying on his own abilities and skills. As we read this parable that Jesus told about the rich man, I think it is a fair assessment to say of him that he was an astute businessman. He didn't become rich by being stupid. So, he had what we might call business savvy. Business savvy. He could read the markets of his day. He could analyze his own farm. He could project his earnings for the year. He could balance the books at the end of the growing season. And you know there are many people like this in the world and quite a number among the people of God. These are the people who know what to do. They know what to do. They are not exempt from the temptations and the pitfalls and the financial reversals that come to all men. But when these things do come, and surely they do come, they know what to do. Do. I think Donald Trump is a good example of a man that knows how to do this stuff. They know how to turn lead into gold. They know how to turn pennies into dollars. They have a mind for figures. And so making money comes easy to them. You and I worry, but they go to work. They go to work. While we are fretting about our misfortune, they are making fortunes on the basis of their know-how. I don't think we ought to be covetous of such people. Any skill they possess in the financial world is given by God. Just as your skills and my skills are given by God. Our jealousy shines through in this. We say something like, well, I just wish I had a little bit of financial expertise like them. Well, maybe not if we fall into the same snare that this rich man fell into. 
Jesus said of this farmer, The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Luke 12, verse 16 and 17. So you see his problem. His farm produced what we would call a bumper crop. The Greek word here is euphoreo, from which we get the word euphoria. Ooh. You know, something great, splashy. First part of the word, you means good, plentiful, and foreo means to bear continually. So, put it together, bearing continually that which is good and profitable. Sometimes in the paper I will see in the classified sections of the farmers, and they're selling their hay, and it will say something like second cutting. Or they'll say, it'll say third cutting. And I think about that, and I say, whoa. In Michigan's short growing season, I would suspect that any farmer who gets three cuttings from his hay field in one season is having a very good year. The rain, the sun, the soil, the nutrients had to be just right to produce the kind of continual crop the farmer, in Jesus' account, experienced. So he had a problem. What was his problem? He tells us. Oh, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. We say to ourselves, I should have such a problem. So our envy starts to show through. Perhaps some of the substitute for faith this farmer exhibited as well. Now remember, Jesus is describing a businessman with know-how. He is not inexperienced in agricultural matters. He understands how the market works. He knows that as a farmer, he may not experience another bumper crop for many years, but he is also aware that his crop will keep if he can store it properly out of the weather. He also is realistic that if everyone is having a bumper crop that year, the price for his produce will likely go down. It's the too much supply, too little demand principle. So if he can just hang on to his crop by storing it, he can weather the gut in the market and make a killing financially when hard times return. 
the world would applaud this farmer as an astute businessman for his solution. What was it? Verse 18, 19. This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns. Remember, they're the little ones. That's all he's got is little barns. And build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. We read that and we ask, well, what's wrong with that? Are we not supposed to think of the future? Are we not to look at life in stages and realize that, humanly speaking, we are not going to be able to work and support ourselves forever? Should we spend everything we make and forget about ourselves tomorrow? I mean, isn't there biblical warrant for having a nest egg? For those retirement years? The answer to these questions is yes, yes, and yes. We do have biblical warrant for preparing economically for the future. Solomon wrote, the wisest man who ever lived, except for Christ. Solomon wrote, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer, no ruler. Yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. Proverbs 6, verse 6 through 8. And Solomon is telling lazy people to learn from the ant to store up provisions in the summer season of life while you can work, because winter is coming, the ant will go into hibernation. But that's okay, because the ant stored up in the summer, and in hibernation she still has food to eat and feed her family. By the way, Solomon took his own counsel. Whoa. We read in Scripture, Solomon built Gerar, which was Gezer, excuse me, G-E-Z-E-R, Gezer, which was destroyed by Egypt, as well as all his store cities. He rebuilt them and the towns for his chariots and for his horses. Whatever he need, desired, he built in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and throughout all the territories that he ruled. First Kings 9, verse 17 and following. We have an expression. Make hay while the sun shines. Jesus put it this way. Work while it is today. For night is coming when no man can work. Who would say that Joseph's faith was flawed when he told Pharaoh, and I'm reading scripture, let Pharaoh appoint commissioner over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt, 
during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held and preserved for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. Genesis 41, verse 34 and following. And Pharaoh took Joseph's advice. And the granaries of Egypt fed not only the Egyptians in the time of famine, but the surrounding nations, including the people of God. You remember, Jacob sent his sons to Egypt to buy grain. Well, there was grain to buy there because of Joseph's encouragement of Pharaoh to establish these cities. Paul told Titus, his co-worker, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Titus 3.14 To Timothy said, If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 1 Timothy 5 verse 8 Provision, as you know, means that you have to plan ahead and you have to store up so that you can tap into those reserves when bad times come. In addition to these scriptures, which speak to the issues of saving and providing for the future, we have a whole host of other scriptures that forbid us to be lazy and encourage us to work hard. We began this series with the account of the master who distributed talents, money, or skills to his servants, and then he went away, believing that it was reasonable that these servants would put his money in the bank to earn interest, to accumulate and grow wealth, so that when he returned, he would see a profit. Well, the man who did not do that but buried the money in the ground. Instead, he was called wicked and lazy and cast out. Paul says, For whenever we were with you, we gave you this rule. Here's the rule. And this is from 2 Thessalonians. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. Pretty direct. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 and following. Even the covetous were instructed. He who has been stealing 
must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Ephesians 4, verse 28. So, all these scriptures on storing up in the present for the future and which encourage a healthy work ethic and condemn laziness teach us there's nothing wrong with striving to provide that nest egg for your family. Okay. So what was wrong with the farmer in the parable who planned to build bigger barns and store his crops for future use? Well, the condemnation of Jesus tells us what was wrong. Verse 20, 21. God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared? Get it now. That you have prepared for yourself. Hmm. He goes on. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. Luke 12, verse 20 and 21. The sin of this farmer was not that he wanted to store his bumper crop for future use, but that he trusted in his business acuity and know how to make life cushy and sweet so he would not have to rely on anybody or anything for his future needs. And the end. So he would have the opulence to live like a king into his old age. He stored for himself, not his family. He believed in being rich in possession, but not rich towards God. He took his life for granted. He believed in his own abilities, his own skills to care for himself. He had faith in himself, but not in God. He thought, I can do this. I can do this. He didn't need God. And Jesus' point was that with God out of the sinking, he missed the very one who controls the future in those areas that really count. So some questions arise. Will you live or die? Will your savings benefit you or another? One of Solomon's observed grievances was this. I'll read it for you. Solomon speaking. He says, I hated life. <laughs> because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. I hated 
all the things I had toiled for under the sun because, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. Oh, this too is meaningless. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 17 and following. Back to Luke 12. How does this parable Jesus told how did it came about? Look at verse, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. You get the picture. Mom and dad died. They left the estate. Probably the executor of the estate is the older brother. And he has determined he ain't going to share it with Junior. And so when this guy sees Jesus, here's his instruction concerning Financial matters. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus' answer was that he had not come to be an arbitrator in such matters. But he also gave this warning. Verse 15. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You see, this brother needed to learn this. And the farmer in the parable illustrates what can happen when trust in one's ability to amass possessions precedes trust in God. Now you might ask, well, what was this farmer supposed to do with his bumper crop? Did he just leave it rot in the fields? Well, I mean, was that a good idea? The context shows, verse 32, following, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted. Where no thief comes near. And no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be 
also. Luke 12, 32 and following. So the farmer had some options. The farmer could have used his surplus to help those who had little or nothing and then trust his future to God. Paul said something similar to Timothy when he wrote, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 and 18. Things which <laughs> you can be sure these rich people never thought about doing. So how are you doing? How am I doing in these areas where faith in God is substituted for faith in our own abilities and skills? Well, I hope we fare better than the wicked whom Job describes saying, they spend their years in prosperity and they go down to the grave in peace. They say to God, oh, leave us alone. We have no desire to know your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? What would we gain by praying to him? But their prosperity is not in their own hands. So I stand aloof from the counsel of the wicked. Yet how often is the lamp of the wicked snuffed out? How often does calamity come upon them? The fate God alone allots in his anger. How often are they like straw before the wind, like shaft swept away by a gale. Job 21, verse 13 and 14. See, there are consequences for being wicked, and God takes care of all of that. To have your barns full and your portfolio packed and your savings account secure, but not to know God, nor to be forgiven for such greed and misplaced faith is to be poor indeed. People need to think about things like that. But of the financial, financially poor, James asked this question in his epistle. Listen, my dear brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit what? The kingdom he has prepared for those who love him. James 2 verse 5. Well, I never thought about that. 
Yeah, they don't have much money. They're poor. But they're rich in another way. They're rich in faith that secures for them a place in glory. They're rich in faith, but poor in this world's goods. Our princes in the making, a kingdom awaits them. They're rich towards God, and so should we all be. Again, Paul writing, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 and 5. So the first thing we do sometimes do in substituting for our faith is we substitute our own abilities and our own skills. And we think, I can do this. Secondly, we can substitute faith in human reason. Let's be reasonable. How many times have you heard that in life? Let's be reasonable. That's the philosophy of believers as well as the unbelieving world. And in the same way, we trust our view of life over God's. There's nothing quite as convincing to us as our own thoughts. <laughs> and the assumption seems to be that because we are believers and we have minds, informed by the new nature that our thinking is always Christian because, oh, well, we are Christians. So, of course, our thinking is Christian. In the weeks to come, I hope to challenge you as well as myself on various topics dealing with life in which human opinion will be opposed by God's declared word. We will all be under scrutiny then from God to see where our faith really lies. Let me just say for now that Christians do not automatically think Christianly. If that were so, Paul would not have said to the believers of, his, of Rome, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, his pleasing, his perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given to you. Romans 12, verse 2 and 3. 
How are they using their minds? Well, they were thinking of themselves more highly than they ought to have been doing. He says that. So Paul charges them to develop a new mindset because that kind of thinking, that self-reliant type of thinking, is so conforming to the world's pattern of thinking. The world says that too. I can do this. I don't need you. I don't need God. I don't need your counsel. I can do this. The verbs are in the imperative mood. When God says, stop conforming to the pattern of the world, but be transformed in your mind and in your thinking. It's a command mode with a negative. Stop conforming implies that the action of conforming to worldly thinking was already going on. Yes. If you tell your children, stop playing with your food and eat your lunch, you are commanding a change in the way they are using their spoon in the bowl of soup. You want them to stop doing whirly cues and alert and start spooning the broth into their mouths. Stop playing. Eat. Stop this. Do this. God says the same to us. The Christians at Rome were using their minds, their thinking powers, in the same way they had always used them. To solve life's problems without much consideration or faith in God. They were living by their wits because that is the way they were used to. And they had gotten by quite well that way, thank you very much, for years before they ever knew Paul. But in so doing, they had not been able to test and approve what God's will was, his good and pleasing and perfect will. We do not discover and approve God's will through faith in our own reasoning. Thinking Christianly requires faith in God's word over our own opinions. Why? Because God's thoughts are not your thoughts and his ways are not your ways uh, of doing things. The farmer in our text got into trouble at this very point. When confronted with the dilemma of a bumper crop, this is what he did. Verse 17. He thought. He thought to himself. Oh boy. What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. What shall I do? His solution was tear down the little barns, build bigger ones. 
but there were other alternatives. He could have used the barns that he had, small as they were, and sold the remaining crop to use the money in works of benevolence for the needy. Oh, there would be an idea. He could have allowed the poor of the countryside to glean the surplus and eliminate the need for bigger barns. You remember that Boaz did that in the book of Ruth. Boaz, the landowner, allowed the poor to come after the harvesters had gone through his field. You know, when you harvest things, it doesn't matter whether you're using a sickle or you're having modern machinery. There's always droppings that are left behind the harvest. Pieces of grain, corn, wheat, whatever, that don't make it into the harvest basket. And so the poor would come behind the regular harvesters. Harvesters would go in there with their sickles and they would take out the prime wheat and bag it up, store it up and so forth. But they didn't get every last piece. So then the poor would come behind and they would glean by hand, maybe a little rake of some sort. They would take out the, the scraps that were left over and Boaz, who owned a great field that was harvested, saw that Ruth was there struggling away to get whatever little bit of grain she could get for herself and for her mother-in-law, Naomi, both of them being widows. He was happy to have her in his fields, gleaning. In fact, he even told his servants, hey, See those two ladies over there? If they're following behind you, you be sure to drop a little bit of the real grain on purpose so that they can find it. Farmer didn't think in reference to God's will. Verse 33. Why don't you sell your possessions and give to the poor? Well, that never crosses mine. You say you have a bumper crop? You say you don't have enough barn storage to put all of it in out of the weather? Here's the thought. Sell some of it and give it to the poor. Verse 33. He didn't think God's thoughts in that way. He didn't consider what Jesus said in verse 23. Life is more than food. And the body is more than clothes. Why don't you do something for humanity? Why are you always thinking about yourself? Instead, his thinking was like that of the pagan world, which verse 30, says, verse 30 says, runs after all such things and would never think of seeking God's kingdom, verse 31, with the faith that these other things will be given as well. 
God does not expect us to set our brains on idle when it comes to life, but neither does he expect us to trust human reasoning above his declared will in his word. Instead, God says to us, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and don't lean on your own heart or understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6. Jesus rightly analyzed the people of his day saying, he who belongs to God, hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Wow. John 8, verse 47. And this is so basic to Christian living that it hardly needs saying, but it does need saying. Now, as much as ever, because faith in God and listening to His word, His commands, accepting them as the truth by which we must live our lives, is foreign to the so-called Christian thought of our day. The Christian thought of our day. There are hundreds of professing Christians who believe that they can serve God their way and have God endorse their thinking because they are Christians. I think we're sometimes guilty too. We ask God to bless our decisions without questioning if the decision was ever of him in the first place. We assume that it was because, uh, after all, uh, we are his people. But in this scenario, where's our faith really placed? Is it not in our own reasoning and thought processes? And the pat answer I hear all the time is this. Here's the answer that I get from people. Well, I prayed about this, and I believe God is leading me to. Whatever. I I prayed about this, and I believe God is leading me to marry an unbeliever because he's a kind man. I believe God is leading me to enter into a business partnership with a man of the world because, well, you know, he's really good with figures. Well, I believe it's okay for me to get a divorce because I and my spouse, we just don't see eye to eye anymore. Well, I believe it's okay to forego Disciplining my unruly child because I don't want to stifle his creativity. All of this substituting human reason for faith in God. 
Finally, there's the third error here, substituting faith in idols for the God of the Bible. I mean, when you think about it, much of what we have been already studied has to do with idolatry. The farmer who believed in himself and his own abilities to solve his problems of a bumper crop worshipped himself. The person who trusts in his or her own thinking is to solve problems reveres his own intellectual prowess. But I'm thinking more of our misconceptions of God, misconceptions which shape God into the person we want him or expect him to be. Oh, wow. It is the most basic level of idolatry. The Hindu, with his 5,000 plus deities, has Jesus Christ listed as one of them in his pantheon of gods. But is that the Jesus of the Bible? No. But he's there. The Jehovah Witness has a place for Jesus in his worship, but not as God's eternal son. They think of him as a person of time and creation. Just like them. The Mormons have a Jesus who is divine. But no more so than they view all believers. Moving towards divinity. Including themselves. These are obvious distortions of God in whom people place their faith. It may even come down to an idolatry that is too close for comfort. What about us? Are we entitled to shape God as an all-loving, as one who would never think of sending anyone to hell? Because of sin? May we think of God as the great benefactor who wants all of us to be healthy and wealthy and successful as the TV preachers preach. Then where will your faith be when God does not heal you of your disease? Will you Reinvent, reinvent God again? Is it not idolatry to view God as one who does not see us? A God who does not care what we do with our money? Does not concern himself with conforming us to the character of his beloved son, does not expect us to represent the gospel faithfully to the lost. In all these areas and more, we commit idolatry by shaping God in our image the way we want him to be instead of how he declares himself to be. Brethren, idolatry was the first sin, and it's the last sin. 
Paul writes it this way, although they claim to be wise. He's referring to Adam and Eve. Although they claim to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever to be praised. Amen. Romans 1 verse 22. That was the first sin. And if this is your sin this morning, I call on you to repent. And you need to do it today and you need to do it now. Your paltry views of God are idols. <laughs> They're idols. He is who he declares himself to be. But you've shaped his into what you want him to be. So he's more agreeable with your sin. Can you see the self-deception in that? You're trying to make yourself feel good about God and your relationship to Him. So you create a God that will accept you the way you are. Well, God cannot be yours in peace without the truth. But if you turn away from your self-views, confessing your sin and believing in the Savior who died for your idolatry, then today God will disclose himself to you and you will come into the light of his presence and wisdom. To be rich towards God, as the scripture put it, is wealth unimaginable. Solomon put it this way. A prudent man sees danger. He takes refuge. But the simple keeps going. And they suffer for it. Humility and the fear of the Lord bring wealth and honor and life. In the paths of the wicked lie thorns and snares. But he who guards his soul stays far away from them. Proverbs 22, verse 3 and 5. Leave the broad road that leads to destruction and step on the narrow footpath that leads to God. Few that find it, yeah, that's true. None find it till God finds them. And they obey. So that's my charge to you today. Today, if you hear his call, come believing, come repenting. God will be glorified in your salvation today. You know, God accepts people into his kingdom 
on his terms. You don't dictate to God. He dictates to you. And in the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, these book, first few books of the New Testament, it is all spelled out for us as to how a person comes into a right relationship with God as Savior. And who's telling this stuff to us? None other than God's very own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he sent from glory in the form of a baby, grew up among Jewish parents, lived a godless, a God profitable life obeyed the law of God spiritually truthfully holy without flaw well then why did they crucify him he was paying for the sins of his people not his own personal sins that's why you need a savior and that's why Jesus is the only savior he's the only man that ever lived that was perfect and sinless. Oh Lord, don't allow the devil, we pray, don't allow him to snatch away the truth of God's word. Forget the idols. Help us to forget the idols, our wrong concepts of God. Help us to have an ear to hear what you tell us about him, about yourself, and how your son plays the important role. Bless the truth of the scriptures to our hearts. And we'll thank you for what you're going to do. Save someone today. Talk to our hearts. And if we have been believers, Christians, but not living like we should, we pray, Lord, that uh, you would change our motives and our desires. This farmer in his field, and you know, he... He was awarded with a bumper crop, but he, he couldn't handle it in a proper and spiritual way. His greed took over. And God called him into account. Bless the truths of our scripture today. In Jesus' name, amen. From the uh, Brown Hymnal, our closing hymn is 410. Four ten in number. I love this hymn. It certainly supports what I've been preaching today. My faith where? looks up to thee. Not faith in self, not faith in friends, not faith in government, not faith in wisdom, not faith in reasoning, not faith in physical strength, know-how, acuity, any of that. My faith looks up to thee.
Sin has made such a terrible wreck of our lives. That's why we need a Savior. That's it. We need someone who never sinned. Not once. No sinful thoughts. No sinful deeds. No sinful actions. Never once. That would be God's Son. So we're saying the only person that has never sinned is God. You need God. I need God to save us. To save you. I need someone to pay for my sins using his perfection over against my sinfulness. Say, who's going to do that? Jesus Christ did it. He came from glory. And he said, I will pay for Pastor Luke's sin. I will die for his sins. The scripture says, the soul that sins shall die. That's what your law says, God. I will pay the price. And you have to accept it because my life is sinless. So I'm not paying for my sins. I'm going to pay for Pastor Luke's and for this person and that person. All that is required is that I believe that Jesus did it for me. Is that too much to ask? Wow. Think of the diamond you're getting. Think of the jewel. Salvation. Forgiveness. Reconciliation with God. Heaven's glory to come. Is it too much for God to say, you can have it all, but you've got to come through my son. And you have to acknowledge that your sin is laid on him. And that's what the cross was on. 
Can you believe in him that he paid for your sins like he paid for Pastor Lutz? You would think that the world would jump at that. Wow. What a prize. You mean forgiveness and cleansing and glory to come and all of that by trusting in Jesus and what he did on the cross. Yeah. What is more, I don't need that. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in heaven. I don't believe in hell. Oh, and where'd you get all that information? I just know it. You guys that preach, you just try to scare us all. Ooh, I wish I could. I wish I could scare you into heaven. But I can't. Only God's Spirit can change your mind. And He's about to do it if you'll trust Christ. Our Father, help us to relieve, be relieved of our skepticism. It's a matter of faith. That's what faith is all about. We have to believe what your word says about heaven and hell and how to get there and who Jesus was and what he's accomplished. We weren't there to see all of this, to hear all this, but praise the Lord, you wrote it all down in your book. You had your apostles, the disciples, who followed Jesus foot to foot, here and there and everywhere, and they wrote it all down by Holy Spirit. Not a word was missed that you wanted written down. And lo and behold, the scriptures were preserved through the centuries of Bible burners and God-haters and all of that so that we today have a realistic rendition of the Word of God. And only the Word of God can save our souls with the truth. I want to thank you for that. You didn't leave future generations alone. You didn't desert us to our own sin. You saw to it that that gospel that was accomplished at the cross thousands of years ago reached all the way up into 2023. Still here, still being preached. Lord, give us the faith to believe. For your honor, for your glory, we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. See you tonight at uh, 6. Did it work?